Hi there, my name is Ted Steiner and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Welcome to episode 3.6 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. You hear me talking a lot about TAS Gazex. They're a big sponsor of the show, and we really couldn't do this without them. I want to tell you a little bit more about what TAS does. TAS is the world's leader in remote natural hazard prevention systems and has been implementing solutions for ski resorts, villages, highways, and work sites for more than 20 years. They design, manufacture, install, and maintain not only fixed, but also removable and mobile avalanche control systems. In addition, they can outfit your operation with weather stations, remote sensing avalanche detection systems, and even avalanche fencing solutions. TAS, an avalanche of solutions, a company of MND Group. You can find out more at www.tas.fr or find a link to their site from the podcast website, www.theavalanchehour.com. starting to get quite a bit of action within the snowpacks of the western U.S. and Canada mountains. Things are certainly starting to wake up, as they say. Share your observations with us by tagging us in your snow and avalanche-related social media posts. We are at the Avalanche Hour podcast. Don't forget to always check the forecast before heading out into the backcountry. Are you on that powder hunting road trip for the holidays and in a new zone? Go to avalanche.org or avalanche.ca if you're up north to find your closest avalanche center to get the current forecast. As it is the season of giving, I want to mention a great opportunity to help the avalanche community. A lot of you are familiar with the American Avalanche Association or A3 as we call it. They've been keeping people safe in avalanche country since 1986 through education, publishing, and outreach. These guys do a ton of good work, and they've made particularly great strides with both the pro training program and some of the publishing that's going on with Snowy Torrents and the Avalanche Review during the last couple years. They can't do it without donations, and this year, an anonymous donor has stepped up and offered to double your donation for the month of December only. So this month is really the best time to donate to A3, and no amount is too small. Please go to AmericanAvalancheAssociation.com and click the Donate button in the upper right corner of the screen. Or you can write to A3's Executive Director, Dan Caveney, at dan at avalanche.org for more information. This truly is the best time to help support uh, the A3, and so please consider that in any of your holiday giving. All right, raise your hand if a new beacon is on your holiday gift list this year. Maybe you're about to get one from Santa Claus or Grammy or Uncle Bill. Not sure what to do with your older functioning digital beacon? I would consider donating it to the South American Beacon Project. Since 2011, Alex Turan and other volunteers have been putting beacons and other avalanche rescue gear in the hands of ski patrollers and rescue workers who don't have access to this gear. In addition to getting them working rescue gear, the Beacon Project has also developed avalanche education programs for mountain communities in South America. Check out more of what they do on their website, www.southamericanbeaconproject.com, or go listen to episode 214 when I interview Alex. You can send your older working digital beacon to 3434 East, 7800 South, number 263, Cottonwood Heights, Utah, 84121. And you can find that address on their website as well. 
thanks for considering doing that. Okay, well, obviously you're in the giving mood, and so are we. We're teaming up with Primo Snow and Avalanche to give away four of Matt Promomo's El Professional Snow Saws. Matt saw the need to create a snow saw that is lightweight, cut straight, and was designed by an actual avalanche professional. He stays up late at night hand sharpening these saws in his little Bavarian town of Leavenworth, and I think he's nailed it. Check out his work at primosnowavalanche.com. All right, how do you enter to win, you're asking. You're yelling that in the car as you're listening to me. All you have to do is tag at the Avalanche Hour podcast and at Primo Snow and Avalanche in a social media post of you in the backcountry and you'll be entered to win. Want to double your chances? Show us a pic of your snow pit. I'll pull the drawing on January 15th. You might even get some podcast swag as well. Um, I am not on Twitter, so don't post it there, I guess. Instagram would be the best. I understand I'm getting a bit long-winded here, but let's blast off with today's episode. Lucky you, today is a twofer. First, we'll hear from a listener who wanted to share their story of being caught in an avalanche while being guided, heli-skiing. I think it's a great story to hear if you are a guide, and just as much as if you're a client being guided. It reminds me of the importance to make sure everyone has a voice and everyone has the veto right in decision making. I appreciate this individual for sharing this. Check it. So I've been backcountry skiing for the better part of 25 years now. And uh, over that time, I'd say I learned a fair amount of backcountry travel and snow safety. I uh, have my uh, area level two certification and I typically spend about 20 to 30 days a season in the backcountry, both touring, heli skiing, or cat skiing. But majority of my time is spent spent uh, ski touring. I'd say that you know I'm a fairly knowledgeable, fairly uh, competent backcountry traveler with enough knowledge and understanding to know what terrain I should be on or shouldn't be on and how to get through that terrain safely. So in, in February of 2014, a buddy of mine and I, we decided that we wanted to head out to British Columbia for a week of heli skiing. The, uh, the operation that we skied with was what you might describe as somewhat of a, a boutique heli operation with a pretty sizable tenure in the Caribou Mountains in northern British Columbia. The trip was actually the second time we had skied with these guys, so we knew that they were pretty dialed in and, and knew what they were doing. Like many of the heli operators in BC, they flew uh, Bell 205s, which as you know is a big ship and holds 10 skiers, two guides and a pilot. So with each lift, they're able to put a pretty big group on the slope. Each group of 10, we had two guides, a lead guide and a tail guide. All of these guys that uh, were guides up at this operation were well qualified. All of them were ACMG certified ski guides. So these guys were pros. So a few days of skiing prior to the avalanche were pretty good and everyone was having a great time. The snowpack was stable and didn't show any signs of instability. This part of British Columbia has an intermountain snowpack, which, as you know, is similar to the Wasatch or the Tetons. So there's plenty of snow and the conditions were reasonably stable. On the uh, night before our last day of the trip, we had a warm front come through uh, and it rained uh, from the base up to the summits. So when we woke up in the morning, uh, I had seen that it had rained uh, the night before. I was pretty much resigned to the fact that we were going to be watching movies in the lodge all day and not skiing. But as we normally did, we met after breakfast with the guys to talk about the plan for the day. And uh, to my surprise, they told us we were going to go skiing, but that we would be uh, pretty much uh, skiing only low angle, low angle slopes. So I figured they must have done something that I didn't know. I know that they had done a recon flight earlier that morning. So, uh, I figured that, um, that they, they knew what they were doing. 
So after breakfast, we got our stuff together and flew out on our first run. The, uh, the ship dropped us off on a ridge at about 6,000 feet. The slope we were planning on skiing looked like a typical resort run with trees on either side, which after maybe a few hundred meters or so funneled into a fairly narrow drainage that ran more steeply to the, to the, to the valley floor. The slope was pretty low angle, I'm guessing somewhere around 30 degrees with a few steep pitches that maybe pushed the mid 30s, low 30s. As soon as we got off the helicopter and stepped into the snow, it was pretty obvious that the rain had a pretty dramatic effect on the snowpack. Although I, I thought it was a bit unnecessary because I thought the conditions were pretty obvious enough, I was glad to see that the guy broke out his shovel and started to dig a pit. While we were standing around watching him, I remember looking over at my buddy and telling him that I didn't like the situation, that I wasn't really comfortable with skiing. So uh, when he finished the pit, uh, I asked him what kind of results he got, and he told me that he didn't get any results and that there were really no signs of instability, which was frankly kind of surprising. So when he finished up uh, the pit, he uh, gave us the plan, and the plan was to ski the slope one at a time and regroup at a island of safety, which was an elevated saddle about halfway down on the skier's right of the slope. I was the fourth skier on the slope and found the snow to be a little wet, a little heavy, but it actually skied fairly well. About a quarter of the way down the slope, I had a really strange sensation that my skis weren't responding the way they should. I remember looking down at the skis and seeing the snow moving with me and past me and breaking up all around me. I tried to ski out of it, but I was pretty quickly knocked off my skis and started moving down slope, heading towards the choke at the top of the drainage. I was caught in a uh, fairly large wet slab avalanche. Everything happened pretty fast, uh, but I remember uh, putting my Avalon in my mouth and looking at my buddy and our guide in the safe, safe zone just beyond the flank of the slide as I was swept past them. And while that was happening, I was wondering what my buddy was going to be telling my wife uh, when he got back. I remember being on top of the snow and looking down slope and just saying to myself, okay, hold on, this is going to be a rough ride. <clears throat> the slide took me about 400 feet downslope before I came to a stop, just before the choke. As I came to, the, to a stop, I was just thinking about how lucky I was, and, and that's when I was hit again. It seemed like only seconds after I came to a stop when a fairly sizable hang fire hit me from behind. Fortunately, the hang fire didn't send send me too much further down slope, but the force and the amount of snow hitting me from behind bent me over to the point I thought I was going to break my back. When everything finally did come to a stop, I was buried up to my waist. I was able to be dug out and had no real physical injuries other than some bumps and bruises. After that, we all piled into the ship and flew back to the base and we called it a day. The guides went back up to take a closer look at the slide and the conditions. The wet slab avalanche broke above me and ran about 200 meters down slope. I characterized the slide as a D3 and it propagated the full width of the slope about 100 meters. And the crown was ranged in height from about eight to 14 inches. It was a big avalanche. So it wasn't until a few days later that I was able to wrap my head around what happened and actually process everything. I don't know what the motivations were for the operator to make the call for us to ski that day. I know that we were behind in our guaranteed minimum vertical. Uh, I, I don't know if, if, if that was a motivator or not, but regardless, I was pretty upset for them making the call for us to ski that day. I was upset with the guide who put us on the slope when he knew he shouldn't, shouldn't have. We should not have been there. I'm not a guide. I don't know the formal training that they have, but, but I knew we should not have been out. 
But most of all, I was upset with myself because I was afraid to speak up and raise my concerns. I didn't want to question the guy with the credentials and I didn't want to be that know-it-all client that spoke up and I fell into the heuristic trap that as a part of my avalanche education and learning over the years I've heard and read so much about. After that experience, whether I'm being professionally guided or not, I speak my mind and I ask questions. If something's telling me not to ski a slope, I won't. I think the biggest lesson that I learned was that we're all responsible for our own safety in the backcountry. And if something just doesn't seem right, you need to make a decision to say something or do something. Thanks again for sharing. If you have a story you want to share, please reach out to us so we can all learn from the close calls of others. Next up, I had a great time gathering the content for this next interview. The interview features Ted Steiner, who is an avalanche forecaster based in Whitefish, Montana. Ted works for David Hamry and Associates, who consults and forecasts for the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railway and John F. Stevens Canyon. Part of our interview includes a site visit to the canyon to see some of the impressive slide paths that threaten the rail grade and highway. We also hear from Ross Lane, who is a public relations official for the railway. He sheds some light on the importance of the railway to U.S. commerce. Climb aboard for our interview with Ted. All right, welcome to the show, Ted. Thanks for making the time. You bet. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Ted Steiner and I are currently driving down John F. Stevens Canyon, and this is Ted's forecast area where he works as a forecaster, uh, a contract forecaster for the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. Ted, I was hoping you could just give us your your background and and your current role and some of the past roles you've played within the snow and avalanche community. You bet. I uh, started patrolling back in the early 80s and continued on through early 90s and then from there got into working with the Glacier Country Avalanche Center and assisting them with a friends group and fundraising activities, education for the public. Moved on from there and started working with a railway and program that I'm with now at BNSF Avalanche Safety Program 2004 and been here since then. All right. And so and so you don't directly work for the railway. Can you talk about the relationship um, with the company that you do work for and the railway and, and how that some of that works? You bet. I work for David Hammering Associates, and Hammering Associates has had a contract with the railway since 2004. And actually, it started out as Chugach Adventure Guides and then transitioned into Hammering Associates. When that transition happened, it's Hammering Associates, and I've been with them since. At any rate, uh, it's been 14 seasons, going into the 14th season here. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the, the number of paths in the canyon and some of the general weather patterns and snowpack factors that create some of these larger magnitude avalanche cycles that you guys get? When we're going ahead and and, uh, traveling the canyon, we're looking at all the avalanche prone terrain, which essentially can be the whole canyon itself. But we have 12 major avalanche paths, and I guess those are defined by the paths with snow sheds. And those paths have roughly 26 individual starting zones. With that said, the other avalanche prone terrain, which can sometimes go ahead and light up and become active also, is from one end of the canyon to the other. And we're monitoring all that terrain along with the established avalanche paths with the snow sheds. When we go ahead and, and, and look at things and, and we're you know trying to evaluate where we're at, you know we're looking at avalanche activity as our bullseye data information. And after that, we're gonna go ahead and look at our snowpack and snowpack conditions. And on top of that, how the weather's affecting that snowpack. With all that said, we get class one data and we see avalanche activity occurring. We'll go ahead and provide recommendations for the railway and you know, advise the railway what we see is going on out there and we think might be happening with 
the larger magnitude avalanche activity or potential larger magnitude activity that might be affecting the rail grade. The um, weather patterns that go ahead and drive these larger magnitude avalanches are typically associated with overrunning events or events where we get moisture coming in sometimes in uh, large amounts with Pineapple Express events and this moisture is overrunning entrenched Arctic air. And when these overrunning events happen and we go ahead and start getting heavy snowfall early on, it's usually lower density snow. This snow will go ahead and increase in density as the Arctic air is scoured out and we get this warmer air with continued moisture feed that just keeps pounding the area. We put the heavier snow on top of our lower density snow. If that's set up with you know, an unstable basal snowpack, we can have large magnitude avalanches, perhaps size three or greater destructive size. Yeah, so kind of your classic inverted or upside down snowpack with, with some of these warm and wet events coming in and then hitting the colder air mass and drying out throughout the weather event. Exactly, yep, that's exactly what's going on in our you know, typically anyways, on our, on our large magnitude cycles. And, you know, our return interval, our period for these larger um, events affecting the railway grade elevations, we're looking at about uh, three years on average. Okay. And and so you you spoke a little bit about snowsheds. Could you talk about a little bit of the history of, of what's happened in this canyon with the railway and and some of the reasons that the Avalanche Safety Program came about? Yeah, so the railway started running through the canyon or the rail grade was established back in the late 1800s by the Great Northern Railway. And when that happened, there were wildfire events that went ahead, went ahead and started um, going ahead and, and promoting avalanche activity in the already uh, avalanche prone terrain for the railroaders back in that, back in those very early days. and. Because of that, back early on, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, many recorded avalanche-related events. And those avalanche-related events, although they've come and gone over the years, and sometimes you'll have uh, times of, of, of not much activity, other times will be very active. Um, and, you know, it can be terrain-driven or, you know, uh, vegetation coverage-driven over all these years. But at the same time, we've had avalanche activity throughout the historic record between the late 1800s and now. And uh, the BNSF or the BNSF Railway, which is now running the grade and owns uh, the, the infrastructure on the grade, they've been running on the grade since 1996 and they took over from the Burlington Northern Railway. And uh, they've all, all these different railroads or railway uh, companies have had to deal with avalanches in John F. Stevens Canyon. Okay, so you threw out some statistics before while we were driving that the last avalanche fatality of a railway worker was 1929, is that correct? Yeah, March 1929, um, mail train was hit, fast mail train it was called was hit, and uh, tragically three workers were killed at what is now an avalanche path called Shed 6. So just after the avalanche occurrence occurred there in March 1929, they went ahead and and built the new the new shed there, which is the shed six infrastructure. Okay, so and then um, the inception of the avalanche safety program came came about, like you said, in in 2004, I believe you said, um, and and there was a derailment that was was the inception of the avalanche safety program. Is that correct? Could you talk a little bit about that? January 28th, 2004 an avalanche came out of an avalanche path called 1163. We don't have a snowshed at that location. This avalanche came down and hit a grain train, an eastbound grain train, it was empty, and derailed eight grain cars. And it wasn't a real large avalanche, uh, probably on the sides of a, you know, two plus, D2 plus, something like that, but it went ahead and derailed the train, disabled it, we had another avalanche happen in an adjacent avalanche path about a mile to the east. You gotta understand these trains are like 8,000 feet long. So this other avalanche happened uh, about a mile to the east, 
derailed another seven cars, we, and, and the railway ended up having 15 derailed uh, empty grain cars at that time. And what ultimately happened then is the railway shut down for 72 hours. They had to go ahead, deal with their derailment. And after that, and after that incident, they decided to go ahead and pursue a standardized avalanche forecasting program. Well, just, just driving through the canyon, you certainly have some impressive avalanche paths that, that threaten both the highway and the railroad grade. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about the avalanche forecasting program, what goes on here, and how you deal with some of the hazard. So our program's a little unique, or it's actually very unique compared to a lot of other infrastructure or uh, transportation-based infrastructure um, avalanche programs and that we we don't do any active mitigation preemptively. Um, our program is really focused on forecasting. We need to forecast and provide avalanche snowpack and weather data to the railway and allow them to make decisions based on what we're seeing in the field. So we have a real heavy, heavy emphasis on that forecasting. Sometimes if we do have a larger magnitude avalanche cycle and we have the opportunity, we'll go ahead and conduct emergency-based avalanche mitigation. And that's pretty much how it works. Um, day in and day out, we're driving the highway, doing our field ops on the highway, looking from the highway, and then we'll probably get up into the starting zones once or twice a week, depending on conditions, and do our snowpack analysis as well as look at avalanche activity and weather conditions and how the weather is affecting snowpack stability. So although you came to the to the railway in 2004, 2005, somewhere around then, um, you've been in the area for a lot longer than that in the Flathead Valley and, and I'm sure that's that's why one of the reasons you're so valuable to the railway forecasting program, you have that local knowledge of some of this terrain and I was wondering what sort of history there was on running avalanches and some of the some of the larger avalanches in particular what sort of history was here um, written or documented history about these cycles when you started the program well like i was saying the railway has been dealing with avalanches here since the late 1800s but you know event specific avalanches where there's real good documentation can be fleshed out for specific years um for example, the 1956 cycle shut down the railway for two weeks in both directions and created a situation where they were in emergency for nearly that whole time in Essex, the town, small town of Essex, where the Isaac Walton is, became an incident command center for railway operations. Uh, after that, 1979 cycle was a big cycle, and in that year, the Goatlick Bridge, which probably some of your listeners have heard of, was taken out by an avalanche and the railway was shut down again for over three days and the highway, once the bridge was taken out, it's a highway bridge, was shut down for, for a few months. Uh, so they go ahead and rebuild the bridge. They did have a temporary bridge in place for a while, but at the same time, the impacts of that avalanche cycle were certainly, uh, certainly substantial. On top of the 79 cycle, we've had more recent cycles. Again, 2004, we had our avalanche caused train derailment there at 1163. After 2004, we've had some other big cycles, both 2014 and 2016, while the program's been in place. And thankfully, even though those were larger magnitude cycles, we were able to go ahead and get through those with the forecasting program being in place and taking some. Um, taking some measures that went ahead and, and, and reduced uh, both uh, maintenance crews and train crews to the avalanche activity that was occurring during that time. So over the years, there's been a lot of different uh, avalanche activity as far as size goes. You know, since the program's been in place in the program area, we've seen up to size D3 plus, but you know, there is a historic record there and it can't be entirely confirmed in the forecast area, but I would imagine there's been some D4 and maybe even larger avalanche activity in, in the forecast area. Well, based on just looking at the terrain, I'm, I'm sure uh, it, it seems totally plausible that that would be the case. Uh, big terrain in that canyon and, 
And uh, Ted, I really appreciate you showing me around around your forecast area this morning. I'm so glad you could get out, Caleb, and check it out because it's one of those things where you can talk about it and try and convey what we're dealing with up here in the canyon, but you don't really get a good feel for it until you come up and visit us. So if any of your listeners are up in the area and want to come on up and check things out, please get a hold of us and more than happy to give you a tour around the canyon as long as we're not too busy doing whatever we need to be doing with the avalanche program. All right, there you have it. So Ted, just cruising around the canyon, we walked up to a couple different snow sheds that are existing on the on the railway grade. Can you talk about how those came about and, and kind of the history of that? I was, I was pretty surprised to see some of the date stamps on those snow sheds back to 1913. In the early 1900s, the railway, realizing that they had substantial avalanche problem on their hands, decided to go ahead and start building snow sheds. Today, there's over 5,700 feet of snow shed, lineal feet of snow shed in place on the railway, just in John F. Stevens Canyon. These snow sheds have done a great job of deflecting and conveying avalanche debris over the railway grade where they are located, but there's also avalanche debris and our larger magnitude avalanches that will go ahead and compromise either one side of the snow shed or the other. So in some respects, the snow sheds have done a great job. In other respects, they have gone ahead and created a situation where, yeah, they're conveying some debris over the, the tops of the sheds, but they're also going ahead and allowing snow to and debris accumulate on the ends, one end of the shed or the other. Um, but they've been in place since, you know, like you were saying, the early 1900s, and the railway has maintained not just the BNSF, but the other railway companies have maintained those snow sheds until the present day, keeping those snow sheds in place to do what they need to do to convey that avalanche debris over the railway grade where they're located. And part of this is important because you don't necessarily have a, a preemptive, uh, active avalanche mitigation program. Can you talk about the relationship with the park and, and some of the reasons why that does not exist in John F. Stevens Canyon? So the railway runs on the southern boundary of Glacier National Park. The avalanche paths that affect the railway in John F. Stevens Canyon are associated with all the starting zones in Glacier National Park. Because of this, when the program started in January 2005, the Park Service, along with the railway, wanted to go ahead and conduct an EIS, or Environmental Impact Statement study, on the effects of having a standardized program in which explosives and or other means of mitigation, active mitigation, would be utilized. In the end, the determination by the park was that explosives and or other means would not be allowed on a preemptive basis. Instead, the only time explosives and or other means for mitigation could be considered if the, is if there was an emergency. And that's the situation that we work under today and we have for the last 14 seasons. So essentially you you and the railway would go to the park service and, and, and convey your concerns and then they would make the ultimate determination whether it's a, a emergency and, and there is need for mitigation work. And then if there is, just talk about that process and some of the tools in your toolbox uh, that you have to, to work with. So as the avalanche guy, I go ahead and convey uh, my concerns and our observations, objective-based observations, to the railway. The railway will go ahead and look at those observations and our recommendations and determine on how they want to proceed. They will go ahead and talk with the Park Service and decide with the Park Service as to how things were going to fold out or how things are going to happen in regards to uh, active mitigation and whether or not it's an emergency. And then you have at your at your fingertips you have a, a couple different tools. Uh, I hear you have a daisy bell and then some some other explosives that you can utilize with with aircraft with a helicopter. We do. So we have a daisy bell. Um, we'll go ahead and fly the daisy bell whenever we can as a primary means of mitigating avalanche hazard. We feel that environmentally we can go ahead and utilize the daisy bell and create lesser degree of impact. We also have explosives to back up the daisy bell if we need to use those explosives in conditions that the daisy bell can't be flown 
or snow conditions exist where we don't think the daisy bell will be effective, we do have the explosives as an option. But the daisy bell is our go-to. The railway would much rather utilize the daisy bell um, than explosives if the conditions exist where we can use that daisy bell to mitigate our hazard during an emergency operation. So, Ted, I think it's important to note that you all aren't forecasting just for railway cars carrying grain or 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 goods across the country. You know, y'all are are forecasting for maintenance workers as well. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and and some of the other entities that you're really forecasting for. So yeah, we're forecasting for both the maintenance crews and the railway crews associated with traffic on the rail grade. However, we're also forecasting for the Amtrak trains that are traveling the rail grade, the passenger trains. We'll have two passenger trains a day, an eastbound and a westbound. And as far as the freight traffic goes, you know, 28 to 35 trains a day is what we're seeing on average going across the rail grade um, that we're forecasting for in, in, in terms of train traffic. All right, well, let's hear from Ross Lane here. Ross is a PR representative from the railroad, and he's going to give some context as to what goes on with the railroad and, and how, how, it, how it adds to the commerce of the United States, really. You know, we haul a, a variety of commodities on this rail line, you know, the biggest of which is uh, grain products and consumer products, everything from TVs to washing machines to Amazon packages to skis and new jackets and, you know, lots of bread and or wheat to make bread and soybeans. And like Ted was saying, I mean, the decision to to close um, the rail line to traffic is certainly a big one. It certainly di- displaces the passengers on Amtrak. It's not one that we're, you know, afraid to make. Uh, but we also have other internal protocols in which we'll, you know, limit, you know, the ability for folks to go out and uh, work on the tracks that Ted was mentioning while still running freight. Or we'll limit, you know, the different types of trains that will go through uh, an area depending on the risk uh, of just an internal algorithm that we use. Um, you know, if you put the an average train uh, is equal to about 230 to 300 semi-trucks. So if you do the math on that, you know, you're approaching 75 to 85,000 train or truck loads per week that run across this area. So, you know, if you back up, you know, trains for two and three days, you've got a significant amount of uh, freight that needs to be, you know, just in time if it's to make a ship in uh, Seattle or Portland or if it's, you know, products that hospitals need or whatever. So it's a, it's a very critical lane of uh, commerce, not only for Montana, but certainly from yeah, absolutely. So, so Ross, would you say the railroad is, has ever wished that the railroad did not go through John F. Stevens Canyon? You know, it's named John F. Stevens Canyon for the engineer who discovered the route back in the 1890s, John Stevens. And it's actually, it's pretty much the only route that you can get through, um, in the United States anyways, without going through Canada, from Minneapolis to Seattle without going further south. So I'm sure there are instances in which we, you know, we, across our system, we have a whole lot of challenging terrain, whether it's steep or weather-related, and I'm sure we wish it was flat and easy, but then it wouldn't be railroading, and then we wouldn't be able to have Ted on staff. So uh, <laughs> at the same time, I'm sure <laughs> we wish it was easier, but, you know, it's just a, a challenge, just like it is for highways and any other kinds of transportation. You face a variety of challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it seems like you guys face those challenges well and, and with the right crew here. The history of the railroad in this in Montana, especially right there, is it's pretty amazing. It's The railroad is the reason that Glacier Park exists. And uh, back in the early uh, 20th century, the Burlington Northern and the Great Northern, uh, predecessors to what is now BNSF, were instrumental in the formation of the park, even uh, lobbying on behalf of the park in Congress, and you know, a lot of people don't know BNSF maintains one of the largest corporate art collections in the world uh, at our campus in Fort Worth, Texas. And a lot of that art served as essentially what we would now, you know, be a billboard uh, in train stations in Chicago and New York and various places that the railroad commissioned these art pieces and 
you know, it'll be a very familiar scenery to a lot of people in Montana, of, you know, scenes from Glacier Park. And they acted as a way to get people to come out west, uh, to take the train, to come, you know, see Montana, to see Yellowstone Park, to, to see the state of Washington and others. So it's a, it's a really interesting history, and that's why we do make up the southern boundary uh, of what is now Glacier Park. Oh, that's great insight, Ross. I, I didn't really realize some of that. So thanks for thanks for explaining that. You got it. Ted, can you talk about any close calls or near misses or sleepless nights when you when you know that you know there are avalanche prone conditions out there and and the railroad is open? We're very fortunate that since the railway avalanche safety program began in two thousand and five we haven't had any avalanche incidents or involvement on the railway grade. However, the stress level and or sleepless night factor certainly does increase at times. And this is particularly true when we have uncertainty ratcheting up. And this uncertainty will go ahead and increase when we have extended storm cycles and or avalanche activity associated with these storm cycles and or maybe no avalanche activity, but we know that there is increased load through both snowfall and snowfall intensity and, and wind loading that we have persistent weak layer that might be affected somewhere in the snowpack, perhaps deeply buried. To go ahead and alleviate um, our degree of uncertainty, we're trying to get in the field as much as we can and observing our avalanche conditions or avalanche activity, snowpack condition, weather observations, and how the weather might be affecting potential avalanche activity. We want to go ahead and increase our confidence as best we can and and decrease that degree of uncertainty, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. So there are sleepless nights and there is some increased stress levels of time. And when this is happening, we have to be conservative and that conservatism is passed on to railway operations through recommended restrictions. And these recommended restrictions are passed on to operations for their consideration and, and their implementation as needed. Yeah, it's, I've checked out your website. Um, it seems like there's a lot of great information there, and it seems like you post the those snow pits that you dig on a regular basis there, as well as have some great weather links. What was the inception of that? Was that for the railroad or just more for the public around here? Well, we just wanted to have a database we could share um, our avalanche weather and snowpack information on with um, whoever wanted to see that. Mm -hmm. And the railway has been very supportive of that information being shared for recreationalists and or other people that might be interested in that information. Weather service has a lot of interest in that data. So we'd like to have that database available for for viewing or for access to whoever needs it. Also, if you do go to our website, avalanchealley.com, you'll see data associated with our program area avalanche activity, snowpack conditions, and weather conditions. And we try and update this data on a regular basis along with associated photos. We also have data on this website associated with our field observations and our automated weather station data that's downloaded on an hourly basis. Avalanche Alley, um, in this conceptual form, was put into the electronic and web-based format by Peter Petri of Mobile Logistics. Peter and his business, Mobile Logistics, are located in Whitefish, and we can't thank him enough for all the work he's done to bring Avalanche Alley to the format that it is in as a website and its accessibility and ease of downloading that uh, we have and getting data onto the website from both our computer and mobile devices. One of the attributes on Avalanche Alley that we find to be a real powerful tool is our electronic Avalanche Atlas. This atlas can be accessed when you go to the website, you'll see a static photo and just below it, there's a KMZ file and you click on that KMZ file. And if you have a Google Earth program on your computer and or mobile device, it'll go ahead and populate. And once the uh, KMZ file populates, our program area will show up. It'll be overlaid on the Google Earth image and you'll see polygons for each of the avalanche paths in our program area. You can just then interact with those polygons, 
click on them, and not only will you go ahead and see our Avalanche Atlas data in electronic form, but also you'll be able to see and click on links associated with our Avalanche, Snowpack, and weather observations. Um, the nice thing about this is it's worked really well for us in entering data both uh, on our mobile devices and on computer uh, computer application, but at the same time, it's been great for viewing too. And I imagine good collaboration with the Flathead Avalanche Center here as well. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Flathead Avalanche Center is we work very closely with them and uh, the railway as as well as our Avalanche program. Uh, it's very supportive of the Avalanche Center and getting them information that we can to help them out with their forecasts. Right. So you mentioned um, recreationists. Are there recreationists skiing or, or snowboarding, riding? I guess is the, I try and use the rider neutral term. <laughs> Um, but are there riders that are above recreating above the rail railroad? There are. Yeah. And is that ever an issue? Never, never been an issue. Uh-huh. That's good. No, it's been, uh, everything's worked out good so far. Um, you know, we certainly ask for, um, respect and, and good etiquette from mm-hmm. the recreationalists when they are going ahead and traveling above the railway. It's important that everybody of course is, traveling as safe as possible, carrying the proper gear, and considering that there is a very busy railway as well as traveling public down below all those paths mm-hmm. that they're uh, that they're recreating in potentially. You know, we have a network of weather stations in that canyon. Maybe you've seen it on our website. Um, we have five automated weather stations. And the automated weather stations, three of those are uh, owned by and maintained by BNSF Railway, and they provide us information for forecasting. But we have two others, and those other two other stations, which are critical to our forecasting, I just want to give a big thank you to the United States Geological Survey, the Glacial Park Glacier Park Field Station, and you know they're instrumental in our forecasting and having those two other weather stations, which are remote weather stations uh, run on solar at the ridge ridgeline elevation, are providing great data for us. For both forecasting, then also we have that information available online for recreationalists if they choose to go ahead and look that information up. But uh, definitely wanted to give a shout out to those guys and say thanks so much. Yeah. And also, you know, as far as holistic work goes with other entities in regards to our forecasting and what we do and on behalf of the BNSF Railway, you know, we do work real closely with Montana Department of Transportation. And they've done a great job supporting our program at the same time we provided them the information that's necessary. So I just kind of want to just say that they've, you know, holistically, that's been a big, a big partnership as well as working with the Avalanche Center, as well as working with officials and, um, you know, different managers at Glacier National Park and field, field staff too. Um, they've just been, good to work with and certainly understand the complexities of the program and what we need to be dealing with. And definitely want to say thanks and really appreciate having all those people on board. Yeah. It certainly seems like there's a lot of entities that are collaborating, um, within this, this community, which seems like a pretty tight knit community here in the Flathead Valley. It really is. Yeah, it really is. So as, as Ted mentioned, I, I too want to, you know, thank, we've got a lot of agency partners, you know, the National Park Service uh, with Glacier Park being there, the Forest Service, Montana, Department of Transportation. You know, it's all, it has to be a very fluid system and communications between all the folks and we all have, you know, separate interests of, um, you know, that, that we're responsible for, but at the end of the day, we're all responsible for um, this canyon and, you know, for the environment that we operate in, the that section of, of track, uh, the Middle Fork Flathead River, which is a wild and scenic river, uh, runs right next to our railroad tracks. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons for this program, too, is, you know, safety is, is always the most important thing that we do at, at BNSF. And it's also our commitment to the environment and to the public. Um, we don't want to derail a train, and, and we have lots of other things that we do to keep the track safe, you know, uh, not just the avalanche program. Uh, but many others, whether inspection or different technology. But, you know, it's just part of our corporate responsibility to make sure that we're being as safe as possible, and, and Ted's team is a real integral part in making sure that we do that.
Well, it seems like, uh, you know, this is a very active forecasting program, and I'm sure you have some help forecasting with this program. Absolutely. A couple of co-forecasters I'd like to mention. First is Mark Dundas. Mark worked with the Railway Avalanche Safety Program between 2006 and the 2014-15 season. So fortunate to have had Mark on board. And since he left and went on to the Flathead Avalanche Center, Adam Clark has been with us. And Adam has been assisting us with field observations and extended storm cycles and larger magnitude avalanche events since that time. Again, a great asset to the program and really fortunate to have had both Mark and Adam to work alongside me during those years for the last 14 seasons. As far as overhead goes, David Hamry, my boss, um, is an incredible mentor and friend, and I'm so fortunate to have had the opportunity to work with him again over the last 14 years. Well, Ted and Ross, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it and and uh, giving us a glimpse into what it's like to forecast for Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad and John F. Stevens Canyon. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks, Ted, for that interview, as well as all the hospitality while in the Flathead Valley. Check out the Avalanche Alley website at www.avalanchealley.com and follow the Twitter feed at Avalanche Alley for up-to-date observations and avalanche activity in John F. Stevens Canyon. BNSF came out with a great video of what Ted and Adam do with the Avalanche Safety Program, and you can find a link to that video in the show notes. Check it out. Thanks to you all for listening to the podcast today. I'm pumped on the uptick of play counts lately. Please help spread the word. Send me your feedback to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com or find a contact link from my website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to. It really helps. We were recently added to Spotify, so if that's your jam, check us out there. Many thanks to TAS Gazex and 10 Barrel Brewing for your support. Music today was performed by Broke for Free, The Polish Ambassador, and Poddington Bear. All made possible by the Creative Commons license and made available by freemusicarchive.com. Mike T, thanks for the artwork. You the man. Don't forget to donate to A3 this month. Make your money go further. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.